So, uh, again, if you're our guest, you may not have noticed, but when you came in the front door, you got the message notes. They look like this. Go ahead and pull those out. Uh, on the front of them is the information about our Easter offering. If you're our guest, this is not for you, all right? This is for our folks who call Four Corners Church home. Uh, if you do call us home, you know that at Christmas, we fell just a little short of our $120,000 goal, which was fine. It was incredible. We went above and beyond our early goal. But what this Easter offering is going to do, it's going to make up the gap so that we can get our special needs kids ministry space up and running. And so that and our security and safety initiative that we're doing around here that you'll begin seeing right around the corner, it's pretty fascinating. But we're about a $15,000 gap on that. So if you call the church home and want to invest in that, it's worth it. In addition to that, we're going to change out a corrugated metal roof on our orphanage in Kerala, India. And that's going to be a few thousand bucks, so about 5000 is there. And then when we get our construction finished that you saw Sophia in the announcements, giving the announcements from, that uh, welcome and announcement video, uh, about 10000 bucks will go in that space. So it all goes towards these initiatives that are just worth it around here. And we have to do that because we're growing and we're looking forward to what God's going to do. And again, for those who call this church home, thank you for your faithfulness. Um, no gift is too small. We already have a, a commitment of $12,000 that has already been committed, and of that, just under $6,000 has already come in. So you've got a few weeks. We don't harp about it. This is about all the talking we'll do about it. But right now, I want to take you to the last installment of our Elephant in the Room message series. When we use the phrase, the elephant in the room, we're talking about that thing that is often avoided, but everybody kind of knows it's there. It's in the background often because we are afraid to bring it to the forefront. We deny the thing that needs to be discussed in the office or in your marriage, and as such, it's like the big thing that is obvious, but we don't want to engage it. So over the last few weeks, we've been looking at elephants in the room related to life and to church life, and today I want to talk to you about a big thing that doesn't, I think, get enough airtime, and I understand why. It's a little hard sometimes to talk about. The implications are huge. And so many people who've talked about what we're going to talk about today have done it in a way that just leaves an ugly taste in our mouth. We don't want to do that. But this church is a truth-telling church. We believe Jesus was right when he said, truth will set you free. And so around here, we try to talk about the truth in kind and gentle, but very direct ways. So I'm going to talk with you today about the reality that everybody spends eternity somewhere. But before I do that, let me tell you a little story. So um, years ago, when I was just beginning to date Jill, we were uh, just getting to know each other. Um, I realized relatively soon after her that we kind of had a special thing. And at that point in my life, I was in college and I knew that I had a call on my life to ministry. And I was very focused on that. And so it's one of our dates, near the end, I said to her, hey, look, I, I want to be honest with you. Um, I'm doing ministry with my life, and I know that um, if you do it with me, it's going to impact you. It's going to impact your relationships with people. It's going to impact our kids. And in church life, by the way, people aren't always nice to the pastor's wife. And you just need to know that to our wife, you know, to, to, to a wife potentially and, and for our kids, should we have them, um, this is a big deal. So I don't really want to date you anymore if you're not interested in doing ministry with me. And then I stopped talking and I waited with bated breath to see what she would say. Because as far as I knew, it was over. Um, and she very calmly looked at me and I could tell she anticipated this kind of thing. And she said, I'm really good with this. And then I knew how good she was with it because 
In just a few days, she said, hey, let's go visit some family of mine. They live about an hour or so south of the campus where we were attending college. And so we get in the car and we go down to visit our family. And for the first time, she introduces me to her uncle John. His name is John Dillinger. And he lived up to the hype. I mean, he wasn't the John Diller, but he was certainly a John Dillinger. And uh, I instantly kind of fell in love with this guy. Uh, John is one of the funniest guys I ever met in my life. And right there at the table as she's introducing him to me, he starts telling stories. And so he tells us, for instance, the story of when he uh, didn't really have a job, he'd find odd jobs growing up, even into middle adulthood. And so one season of his life, he was a cake delivery person. And they'd go to parties and deliver cakes and weddings and deliver cakes. And this was his job. This was Uncle John's job. So he told me the story of how one Saturday morning he got up and picked up the cake to deliver it to the wedding venue for the wedding that was happening that day, but it was a beautiful day out. So rather than going to the wedding, John and his buddies, who he picked up in the car, went to the lake and went fishing and ate the cake as their lunch. Yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? But when he tells you it, it's the funniest thing you've ever heard. And he's got hundreds of these stories. My favorite John Dillinger story, I was there to witness it, Jill and I are getting married. So our relationship progressed, and John's been a part of our lives. And at the wedding, he goes up to the guy who's the pastor of the church where we're getting married, and he says, Preacher! He was a very tall and imposing guy. Preacher, do you guys save bad women here? And the pastor was like, I, 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 yes. He goes, well, good. Save me too for Saturday night. That, <laughs> that's the way John was. He was just out there. John grew up in a Christian home. His dad was a pastor, but his dad had not always been a pastor. John was an older boy when his dad came to Jesus and had his life changed by the power of the gospel. Before then, his dad had been an alcoholic, and with all that often goes in there, if he was home at all, he was often angry. There was verbal abuse and physical abuse. He was a very mean man. But Jesus saved him, and his life began to radically change. He felt a call to ministry. Jill's grandfather planted many churches and just did an incredible thing with the last half of his life with Jesus. And so he began to bring his kids to church, and John grew up with the image of his old dad and the image of his new dad in conflict. There was a lot of conflict in John towards his dad and towards the memories that he had. And a lot of conflict in John towards the church. He had a love-hate relationship, and he did what a lot of people in church do. They confused church with Jesus. Now, those things are connected. The church is the bride of Christ. We do the mission of Jesus but at the end of the day, they're not the same. And John would look around as a guy who was already struggling and look at Christians and think, basically, if they're like that, I don't want to be like that. And interestingly, John, even though he literally said to me multiple times, I know I'm not a Christian. I know if the Lord were to come back or if I were to die, I'm going to split hell wide open. He was very direct about it. But interestingly, he said often to me and to Jill, that he was so proud of the life that we were going to set out and lead together. He was probably one of the biggest encouragers in all of Jill's family towards me, and yet he wasn't in the thing. And so we'd leave after engaging John, and we'd laugh and laugh and laugh, and he just had so many stories, and we loved him to death, and we knew he loved us, and years passed, and John got sick. It was about 2008. And John got sick, and it was one of those sicknesses where he wasn't going to get better. And so there started to be some visits, and he lived just a few hours from here out in eastern Ohio. And 
So we'd visit and, and we'd try, and then it got to the point where he couldn't visit much anymore. And then we got the call that John had slipped into a coma, that he had been unresponsive for a while. And we had prayed for John and prayed for John and prayed for John. And we'd leave these conversations, and Jill and I would be like, he's so close, and yet there's just this holdout. And we kind of knew what it was, but we knew we couldn't break through, that the Lord would have to grab John's heart. So we got that call that he was non-responsive, and Jill said, I feel like I should just go one more time and just, you know, be there. And so we, we kind of sent her and knew that maybe he, he could hear. We weren't sure. So they got there, and they visited, and all the families around talking and telling stories, and nothing from John. He hadn't spoken in a while, and Jill leans down and grabbed his hand and said, John, we love you, and uh, you know the story of Jesus. And you know about grace. And we've been praying for you for a long time to give your heart to Jesus. Nothing. So then Jill prayed for him, a prayer that I'll pray at the end of our service, very similar. I'll pray it next week at Easter when you bring your guests. And she just kind of led in a, in a prayer of commitment. It's not the words in the prayer, but it's the commitment of the heart. She prayed that he'd turn his life over to Jesus and that he'd, uh, he'd believe in him. She said amen, and when she did, and what I'm getting ready to tell you is going to sound like a preacher story, but it's not. Like, there's no exaggeration here. guy who hadn't spoken in days, he literally said, I believe. And those were the last words he said, and in a few hours he was dead. And we were elated that we had some kind of verbal confirmation from him that his heart in the last few minutes of his life had kind of shifted. It was a big deal to us because we loved John, and it was a big deal for us because of what we're talking about today. In fact, the first blank in your message notes, here it is, is everybody spends eternity somewhere. Everybody spends eternity somewhere. And you can go to church a long time these days and never talk about this. And I know why. Like even, even in the last few weeks prepping for this message, there are things that happen in your mind and your heart as you think about this that sometimes aren't the most comfortable stuff to deal with. Like I thought just this week a handful of times as I was in public engaging people. We were out Saturday at a restaurant just having lunch, and there was a moment while we were having lunch together as a family, I looked around the room and I thought, every single person in this room is going to spend eternity somewhere. And that's sobering. And I thought about the fact that Easter's coming up and we, we even celebrated today with our kids with the palm branches coming in because in the Christian calendar today is Palm Sunday where Jesus in the shadow of the cross, it hasn't happened yet, but he's a week away and he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and they grab, they grab palm branches and they say, Hosanna, he saves now. And just a few days later, he's going to be hanging on a cross and a few days after that, he's going to be resurrected from an empty tomb. And so here we are coming up to Easter and we're getting our church ready for all the guests, and that's what all the change in the lobby, for those you call this home, is all about, is creating a guest central place and where we can engage people more personally. And So we're getting ready for all this. So all that's on my mind, and I know that next week in this room, there are going to be people, just like today, and their eternity is not settled. And while that doesn't 
make me afraid or nervous. It certainly brings a certain sobriety to the reality of what we're doing with church. Churches get a lot of press these days. You know, you can see a group of Christians standing on the street corner and God hates fags and turn or burn and all manner of stuff happens. Um, you can see churches doing some pretty good stuff, even on the news. I mean, around here, if you hang around here, we'll celebrate the stuff that we come together and do bigger than any one of us can do. And so sometimes the press is pretty good. And then you have your own experience with people who were church people, good or bad. And then when it comes to this subject of eternity, sometimes it's been dealt with in such a way that it just leaves us a little gun shy to even talk about it. And then no matter how much you do talk about it, there are always unanswerable questions and implications because while the Bible's clear about some things, it doesn't paint a complete picture. And so there's gaps even when we talk about it. Even even if we don't want to acknowledge it, there are gaps in what we know about what the future's going to be. Today, the elephant in the room that we're addressing is not all the unknowns or all the questions, although we'll talk a little about that. The elephant we're addressing is the sobering reality that everybody spends eternity somewhere. That means you will and I will. And everybody you've ever locked eyes on is going to spend eternity somewhere. And no amount of avoiding it or theologically wrestling with it or church's declarations of what it's going to look like here, another church that's going to look like this, none of that's going to change the reality that everybody is going to spend eternity somewhere. And point number two is the second sobering thing we have to deal with, is that the New Testament is clear about the nature of eternity. It's either with God or without God. And this is less about... Ben's interpretation, although there are a variety of interpretations about what that looks like. But today I want to cut to the core, and I just want to look really at what the New Testament, primarily Jesus, has to say. Because point number three, one more time, people you know and love, and people I know and love, will spend eternity without God. They will. And it's very difficult for me to talk about that. I can talk about it abstractly in a classroom. I can talk about it abstractly answering questions. But when I start thinking about the people I know and love, this, well, this will keep me awake at night. In fact, there's no other issue in all of my faith that has put me more on my knees and more in the scripture and more into church history and more into good theology and sometimes some bad theology that I've read. There's no other subject more than this subject that makes me want to know and understand and get behind the heart and the mind of God. Can I um, like be totally honest for a second? Like this is going to borderline on, you know, maybe something a pastor shouldn't say. But if God were to give me a magic eraser and give me like 10 minutes and he'd turn his back, and if there was some part of the scripture that I could get rid of, this is it. I get rid of this stuff. That eternity is coming, and it's really a binomial reality, either or, with God or without God. Because again, academically, I can engage it, but I can't engage it anymore without thinking about people I love. 
from point number four in your message notes. According to Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is the only way to the eternity that is with God. Every few years, somebody does a survey about Jesus, some national global survey, and the results are always the same, always the same. And it's fascinating to me to watch what people do with Jesus. They always rank him very high. Everybody likes Jesus. Everybody likes Jesus. I mean, he gets high marks. Even people who aren't Christians like Jesus. People who are like atheists, if they believe he existed at all, they like him. And if they believe he's some you know, made-up myth, then they at least like what the myth represents. I mean, they love this guy who talked about love. But when I read studies, even like the one that came out just a few months ago, about the surveys that's done, sometimes it makes me pause and I go, I'm not sure that the Jesus that they're surveying about is the Jesus that the Bible often makes clear. Like, to me, there must be a gap. And I can't think about the subject of eternity without dealing with some of the stuff that Jesus himself said. So for, for the next few minutes, like, I'm, I'm going to try to, like, and it's impossible, we're going to try to get past, you know, a couple thousand years of church history and some of the cartoons I saw as a kid for baby boomers and busters like me. You know, there were a lot of cartoons we watched on Saturday morning, and there were portrayals of eternity and the spiritual world and the little red guy and the white guy. And yeah, I'm going to try to like, strip through. And let's just limit our conversation to some degree to the New Testament, to what Jesus said, and just wrestle with it. And we won't get done with everything. I mean, there's a lot that I still don't know. There's some that I know that I hold by faith that still troubles me. But one thing you should know about our church is we believe in the authority of Scripture. And what that means is, is I don't get to erase the parts of the New Testament and the Bible that I don't like. I don't get to do that. It's not my prerogative. And, and by the way, as a follower of Jesus, for those in the room, you don't either. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you are free to dismiss it all. Because believing in parts of it without acknowledging who Jesus is and submitting your life to him runs counter to the whole purpose anyway. Now, I'd encourage you not to dismiss it all. There's a lot of good principles in there and some wisdom to live by, but none of the principles or wisdom are going to put you in a right relationship with Jesus. All right? So maybe you can benefit from what I'm talking about today, but this is for Christians. And it's for our church specifically because with Easter coming up, I want you to get behind the heart and the mind of God and what he was doing. This is not about fear. It's not about um, coming from a negative place. It's not about manipulation or, or some kind of uh, backwards, guilt-ridden motivation. It's what's in the heart and the mind of God. And why would Jesus make the declaration in John 14, 6? These are his words. These are the red-letter words. I am the way and the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I don't know all the implications of that statement, and I certainly don't know all the mechanical ways in which he's going to work that statement out in reality, but the statement itself is not that ambiguous. You want to have a relationship with your heavenly Father, it can only happen by Jesus. And that's not people commenting on Jesus. That's not Paul pushing the Jesus agenda, as they'll tell you in your freshman and sophomore Bible classes or some seminaries. This is Jesus saying, I am the only way to the Father. 
And I wonder sometimes when people answer those surveys about Jesus, if they're talking about their friendly, watered-down version, pick-and-choose Jesus, or the Jesus who makes very explicit and exclusionary kinds of comments like the ones he made right here. He is the only way to the Father. So I guess if we don't like that passage, we've got to somehow relegate it to some culture or some commentary or the bias of the evangelist, in this case, John, suppose. But the knowability of those propositions is much more intellectually uh, difficult for me than just accepting that Jesus believed that he was sent to earth to open the door for people to have a relationship with their heavenly father based not on their works, but upon the grace of God accepted by faith. It's almost as if Jesus wanted his followers to wrestle with a very simple reality. Eternity's coming and it matters. In fact, it matters more than even what happens in this life. And when we get to a couple passages, and man, there are dozens I could pick from. And I just picked a couple. In fact, in my notes, there's like a whole lot more than there are in your message notes because I ran out of room. And by the way, whenever I do that, the, the production team gets very nervous because they know I'm going a long time, all right? Because what we put in the notes on the screen don't always match what they get. So it's all good. It's all good, all right? Um, but when I look at the passages, it really it really makes us stop and go, all right, what's going on here? Why does Jesus, more than any other person in the Bible, why is Jesus the one that keeps pushing the eternity button? And why is Jesus the one who talks more about hell than any other person in the Bible? Now, I, I think I know why some of the people in the church I grew up in talked about it. And sometimes I think it was good, and others I'm not sure. And I know that a lot of people who talked about it talked about it from a position of ignorance, and as I learned and grew and was exposed to stuff and had opportunity, I've been able to backfill some of that. I'm not worried about any of that. I'm not worried about why that mean Christian out on the street, I, I'm not, I want to ask you, why did Jesus talk about eternity and hell more than any other person in the Bible? Number five, it's almost for him that hell is a sobering reality that we must consider as followers of Jesus because Jesus did. But it's not a reality I enjoy talking about. And more than any other issue in my faith personally, I've wrestled. But here's what, something I want to challenge you with, not because I did it well, I stumbled into this. I can't take credit for this. I just was in an environment that pushed me this way, and I'm just kind of wired this way, I suppose. And, but it was still very difficult. And some of you just aren't wired this way. When you come up against a theological conundrum, the enemy of your soul would love for you to just give up and stop and quit pressing forward and don't go back to the Word and don't read. God forbid you pick up a book and read. When you come to theological conundrums, the whole point of those, in terms of God's redemptive purpose in them, is to get you on your knees, get you on your butt with the book open in front of you, on your knees open and humble before the Lord, wrestling with those things, talking to older, wiser Christians and reading dead theologians. And that's the whole point of this stuff. And so for me, without even knowing it, I stumbled into a 
what has really become a lifetime of searching, motivated by a lot of things, but often this point right here. What is the nature of eternity, and how does what we do here and now impact there and then? Don't take my words for it. That's just my journey. You do with it what you want. But as a follower of Jesus in the room, look at Matthew. And Jesus has wrestled with this. Here's Jesus' words. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It's almost as if when he's talking to his followers, it's like, hey, we know this life matters. (laughs) And here's how it matters. Like, things can happen in this life that will kill you and this life will be over. That's your body. And while this life matters, what really seems to matter to Jesus is that life, the one that happens after you breathe your last breath. And between the two, if you have to choose which is more important, for Jesus, the choice is crystal clear. Eternity trumps here and now all day long. Again, if you can get past me or your church tradition or your fear or what you think I might be trying to manipulate you into, whatever that, just deal with Jesus. For Jesus, eternity was a much bigger deal. And it's almost as if he felt it was part of his mission to keep reminding people just what a big deal it is. I I know you get caught up on this stuff over here. and 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 your heavenly father knows. I mean, he cares for the sparrows. Um... He knows of what you need. He knows about your hunger needs and your clothing needs and your food needs, which, by the way, were very big needs in his day, much more than they are for most of us in this room. And then at the end of all that talking about your heavenly Father knows you have need of them, he says in Matthew 6, 33, but in light of all, but seek first God's kingdom. And then all this other stuff will be added. Eternity for Jesus is huge. When you read the passages, for instance, I could take you to Mark where Jesus talks about how horrible it would be to impact a little child negatively and the kinds of destruction that are going to come to people who become spiritual barriers to children. And Jesus goes to like a very dark place. Or Paul's words as he's kind of interpreting Jesus and the implication of Jesus in the life of the church. So he writes to the church at Thessalonica in the second letter we have, right there in your message notes. Look look at these words. Paul says, God is just, and he'll punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on that on the day he comes, to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. And this, be, this includes you because you believed our testimony to you. The idea here is, is that there's this coming reality that's bigger than our reality, and it's called eternity, and you're going to spend eternity somewhere, and everybody you love, people who share your DNA, your friends that you built a life with, they're all going to face the same reality of eternity that you are. And Jesus links the reality of eternity to his efforts on earth. He keeps bringing it up. People want to talk about all the stuff going on in their lives, and he gives them a certain amount of audience for that, but he keeps reintroducing the topic of eternity. So what's the nature of eternity? I don't know at all. I don't. 
and I've wrestled even with what I know. But I'm at the point in my spiritual journey where I'm learning to trust the character and nature of God more and more, even when I don't have all the answers to all of my questions. So let me give you some of the nature of eternity for two purposes. One is just to wrestle with the realities. That's good for us. But the other is, is I want to remind many of us, certainly for me, I want to remind us of why it is there's a church anyway. The church is not here just to do good on this earth and help our fellow man in some ambiguous way. Or even in specific ways like giving a handout or a hand up. All that's a part of the mission. But that is not the primary purpose of the church. The church is here to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, which can include a lot of that stuff, but it must include, it is an essential ingredient that the gospel deals with the fact that this life is coming to a close and that Jesus has conquered death and because he has, you can have life eternal. And so when a church doesn't proclaim that, it ceases being true to the mission that Jesus called the church to have. It would be fair to say that in some sense, it's not the church anymore. Now, just to be clear, Christian or not in the room, you should do a lot of good. You should. Life's better when you do good. Your life's better when you do good. You feel better about you. We feel better about you. And you should not be mean. Life's better when you're not mean. You feel better about you, and I feel better about you, and I like you more. I don't want you to be mean to me. I'll try not to be mean to you. But those things do not put someone in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. They don't. They're helpful. They're kind. In fact, for Christians, those things are to be done in response to the gospel. That Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. It's described in Acts five different times. They call it the kerygma, the essential elements. And he gave his life, but he didn't stay dead. And because of that, you and I can have a relationship with our heavenly father. So what's the nature of eternity? Number one, eternity without God is separation. Eternity without God is separation. There's a lot of ways we can describe it, and there are a handful of images in the scriptures and these images, if they're not exact, literal, they certainly point to something literal that's not pleasant. And Christians disagree if they're that or they're a thing like that. In what way are they that? That's fine. I, they got room for all that. But we don't have to be ambiguous about all of it because eternity without God is in its worst component without God. That's the worst thing about eternity without God is God's not present. And the things of God aren't taking their natural form. So, for instance, God is love and light and good and life and gracious. But without God, then, hell becomes terrifying and lonely and completely, complete darkness and absolutely nothing good and eternal death and torment and a place of no grace. And when the Bible talks about it, it often employs the images of darkness and fire. They say that 
If the sun were to go out right now, it'd take about eight minutes for us to know it, right? That's a decent little uh, segue into the metaphor of darkness for, I think, part of the way that the Bible describes I don't know what it, life without God in eternity all looks like, but I know that there's not going to be any of the light of God. And then the Bible likes to use the metaphor of fire. I don't know all that that means. Like, it might be a little, I don't, I don't know. But at least it hearkens to this insatiable, never satisfied, consuming reality that will never be quenched. And so in our church statements, our doctrine, we tried not to make person choose some interpretation of this passage, and we simply acknowledge that life without God in eternity is going to be very ugly and small and exhausting. The guy who's helped me out on this subject more than anybody else, C.S. Lewis, he writes about it this way. I'll kind of paraphrase his thoughts that hell is a reality that is so diminishing of who you are and who you were made to be and the role that God wanted for you. It's all that God didn't want for you, and it shrinks you down so much so that all the people who will ever find themselves in eternity without God, if we could see it with our physical eyes, the spiritual reality, they would be compressed to the size of a small piece of dust that could fit in the crack on a sidewalk because hell is all things small when God meant something very different for you. I don't know that's all that it is. I think he's on to something. Hell is the diminishment of all that God wants. But when we think about eternity, we want to talk about one side of it a lot. You go to most funerals and everybody makes it, right? Everybody gets to the right side. That's the way it goes in funerals, right? Everybody goes to the good side. But that's not what Jesus said. So number two, here's a second reality. God doesn't grade on a curve. And think about this. Here's the way it practically works for a lot of us. And if not for you, people you know. Here's the way it works. There's a list of people from lowest to highest. Lowest being people who have no chance of getting into heaven. And the highest are those people who are really, 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 really good and they get in. And then there's a cutoff point somewhere between 1 and 10. And if you are above the cutoff point, you're in. And if you're below the cutoff point, you got trouble. That's the way it works for most people. That's kind of the practical theology of how heaven works. And I get it. I, you know why I like that? Because I'm pretty sure I'm making the cut. Now, listen, I, I know I'm no Mother Teresa, and I know I'm no Billy Graham. But compared to most of you, I'm getting in. <laughs> I like this theology. It works for me. Now, if you've really messed up, you're, fa- you're, you're, you're safe. Because you can always find a list of people that are worse than you. You always can. Watch reality television. That's all you got to do. You want to feel better about you? Watch reality television. Sure, lift me up, all right? But let's think about this one. If God grades on a curve, here, here's my opinion. What's the cutoff point? All right, on a scale of one to 10, put you there. 10 is you've done enough to get all the way in guaranteed. Where's the cutoff? Is it a seven? Is it a five? I know this because the question actually happened. Somebody was talking to Billy Graham about this topic, and I've read a lot about Billy Graham the last few days, as a lot of you have. And If you were to ask Billy Graham, because it was asked of him, where on the list he'd put himself, where do you think he'd put himself? I earned a right to heaven? 
by my good works compared to everybody else? Nuh-uh. Billy Graham said, way down here. Way, way down here. How about Mother Teresa? Just two icons, right? Would Mother Teresa say, <laughs> you consider all that I've done and all the sacrifice. I put myself way up. Nope, not what she said. Go, go read it. Go Google me. See if I'm telling the truth. She never looked at any of her good behavior as anything more than a response to the gospel. It never opened heaven to her. The gospel is not based on what you do. Now, the question for you becomes, is this fair or unfair on God? And if he doesn't grade on a curve, what hope do you have? And here's the stark reality. None. I don't have hope, and you don't. In fact, the Bible says it this way. Paul, writing in Romans, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin in chapter 6 is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So for me now, having wrestled a lot, I'm starting to find the beauty in God's plan. Imagine that. The beauty. And that all of us, and this is the part that we're not going to like in America. Here we go. All right, here we go. Here we go. All of us deserve hell. You do, and I do. And the people who hurt you certainly do, and those folks on TV clearly do. We're good with that to a degree. And then how about your kids? Do they? Ooh. Scripturally, yes, we all do. And yet God chose to provide a path that hell would not be the reality for everyone. And that is his grace on display. And when writers write about it, they they look for the most marvelous and extravagant words to describe it. And they sung about reckless today. For some of us, the hymn was amazing grace. Because you just can't fathom what it looks like to be fairly and accurately put at a place that you deserve and then to have somebody open the door so that you don't have to be there. There are different seasons in my life when the reality of this is much more pressing on me. And I think that the more I read Jesus, the more I have to wrestle with the fact that for him, eternity really, really matters. Let me give you the third kind of stark reality here. That... uh, Jesus is the only ticket to eternity with God. I read you the passage in his own words. And Paul, in writing to the church at Galatia, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So if you could do it by being good and obeying the rules or some religious performance. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Part of me doesn't want to give you this message because I know some of you are just guilt-motivated enough that you have to come to church because you think you're going to get to heaven by doing it. Part of me doesn't want you to not believe that. Except Christians who think that aren't very nice Christians after a while, and then you get on my nerves. I'm only three-fourths joking. Christians who believe they were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and nothing they've done, there tends to be a corollary humility and kindness. It's almost as if there's a gratitude for the greatness of the gift and hell and the reality of life without God, the possibility of it, makes the possibility of life with God all the grander. I don't know all that God's doing in this. And I, again, I'm told I'm wrestling 
This was not a fun message to prepare because of what it does to me emotionally. And yet, as I get older and I keep pressing in and I am not willing to give up the fight to know and understand, even though I know I'm never going to fully know and understand, I'm finding joy and peace and comfort in the plan of God. And I'm finding that his character can be trusted. And everywhere I have a doubt about it, it's typically a gap in my understanding and not one in his character. Number four, you and I can impact eternity in two profound ways. Now, there are a lot of ways we can, but here's two. You can trust the work of Jesus to bring you into a relationship with God. And when you do that, your personal eternity has changed. Now, I don't know, you know what God's going to do with all my questions. Like, what about the people who've never heard? I got opinions about that. I've studied that. I know what Christians say about that. That's a fun discussion to have. I don't know fully. But I'll trust his character to deal with it. I know for me what I'm supposed to do. And by the way, I have found with me, maybe with you, just off. Sometimes my questions, don't, they don't propel me to obedience. I get stuck in the questioning. But the information in Scripture is not there for your, for your mental exercise. Although you should have mental exercise. The information in Scripture is there to propel us towards obedience as followers of Jesus. And I've discovered in my own life a tendency to get stuck in the exercise and put off the obedience. So today, obedience one, perhaps, is trust the work of Jesus. Number two, love people enough to share your faith with them. There are a couple ways you can do this. That's a lot. But sometimes, you know, your salt and light that kind of drips off of you as you just do things differently and you're kinder and you're nicer and you treat people as if they're all made in the image of God and that they're all going to spend eternity somewhere. And so the way you engage them, that, that's really, really good. But the mission of the church is more than that. We have to use our words to give the gospel. How will they believe unless they hear and how will they hear unless somebody tells them? And how will somebody tell them unless they're sent? Those are the way Paul walked through this conundrum of how do people come to faith? And so there's a lot of ways you can do it. For Jill and I, we try to be kind and nice to people. We build relationships. We ask them a lot of questions. We do a lot of listening. That's what we did with John over the years. And he warmed up to us. But then, regularly, we would talk to him, and one of those conversations, whether it happened in his heart, I don't know, but in one of those conversations, we had evidence that there was movement. And I wonder what it is you can do to share your faith. You, some of us probably need to be nicer. Some of us probably need to listen better and do more of the fruit of the Spirit. I, I, that's a lot, but at some point, you have to be on the side of sharing your faith. It's called the Great Commission, and it applies to all Christians. So how should we live in light of eternity? Let me give you a couple thoughts, and then we're done. For me, I'm learning to trust God's heart and character with my yeah, but what about questions. I'm just learning that when I don't have the answer, I can trust his character, and that who he is is more important than what I know. And I've known that all along, but I'm starting to take comfort in it, but it doesn't make me not want to investigate. Number two. I think it'd be really dangerous if I didn't at least get this to you here. 
I, I think you probably should make sure your own eternal affairs are in order. So get your eternal affairs in order. And, and that is not just your eternal destiny, but what does living in light of the fact that you are an eternal being going to in, how's that going to impact the fact that you're living in a temporary world? What does that do to your priorities? How does that impact your relationships? What does it do to your time? What does it do to your commitments? Just like in light of eternity, how should you be adjusting your life? And if you haven't dealt with the big issue of Jesus yet, man, deal with that. What are you going to do with him? And his claim that your path to heaven and to the Father is through him. Here's another one. I feel like, to some degree, you can share your faith with the people you love. There's a lot of scripture in here. I quoted the phrase, the Great Commission. I think I have it for you in your message notes. But I was compelled by a quote by Charles Spurgeon. Great preacher. Language was slightly different there. But this guy believed that the gospel was powerful. And when the gospel was proclaimed, and it was lined up with people whose lives were being transformed by the gospel as they proclaimed the gospel, it was a powerful, powerful tool in making a difference in eternity. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, if sinners be damned, and that word is simply talking about the idea of you're being relegated to eternity without God. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with their arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. And man, that is, I just wrestled with that. So at the bottom of your notes, there's room for five names. I won't get them. You're going to take your notes home with you. You can write five names of people that you're going to pray for. God, I don't know how you make the gospel come alive in a person's life, but would you do it for them? And if you want, God, would you use me? I'll try to be light and salt. And when I get an opportunity, I will be bold to speak words. But in, in absence of all of that, God, would you do the work? Because it's your work, not mine. And if you don't have five names you can pray for, seriously, I'm not joking, send me an email and I will populate your list for you. I will. I had people after first service come and tell me with tears in their eyes who they're praying for, sons and daughters. And we don't know all the condition of their heart. We just know that as a church, we're supposed to be about sharing the gospel in ways that both our life and our words get people to wrestle and engage the claims of Jesus that everybody's going to spend eternity somewhere. <clears throat> Why don't you grab out your Connect card? And let's get ready to take a few steps together. I'm going to now, and I'll do it next week if you invite your guests for Easter, when we kick off a brand new series called Fixer Upper. We're going to kind of use the home remodel idea and talk about all the ways that life with God can impact life, all of your life, all the different rooms of your life. And on that Sunday like today, I'm going to give people a chance to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So if you're our guest on your Connect card that we talked about earlier, Next Step A says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. The good news is, is you don't have to earn it. You can't. But you can put your trust in the work that Jesus did on the cross and through the resurrection to open the door for you to walk in and have a relationship with your Heavenly Father. There's a lot of Bible verses about it, but here's one. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. So you can't earn it. You don't have to come next week. You can still go to heaven. 
Pretty remarkable. How about next step B? Today I'm choosing to be baptized. We have eight people being baptized on April 8th. Maybe you'll be number nine or ten. And we'll celebrate the change that happened when people gave their lives to Jesus and they died to self and they're being raised to new life with him. It's a pretty powerful thing. Next step C says, hey, I'll pray for five people I love and invite two of them to 4C Easter. So I've already invited a few. I'm going to invite a few more this week. I invite you to do it with me. Um, we gave you some tools last week to do that, but your words are powerful. And if they need to find us, just tell them the big green sign on I-75 at Liberty Way. They'll get their way here, 9, 15, and 11. Next step, D says, hey, please pray for my lost loved ones. Now, if you check this, on Monday after they enter the cards, I'll have all the cards, and every morning in my prayer time, I'll pray. And if you want to give me names, first names, write it on the back where it says pray, and I'll call out the name. Now, my prayers aren't special, but I felt like this week I wanted to pray for people that God put on your heart. So whether you give me the name or not, I'm doing it. But if you will, I literally will every morning call their name before the Lord and ask God to do his work and use you to help do his work. And the next step, he says, hey, I'll invite or I'll invest, rather, in the ministry of 4C here near and far, and I'll give a gift to the Easter offering. If you're our guest, please ignore this. If you call this church home, the way we move forward on these initiatives is in these special offerings. doesn't matter how big or small. Just do something to be a part of what we're doing. Why don't you set your Connect card aside? If you do call this church home, this is where we give back and invest in the ministry of this place. Some folks are coming forward to receive your offering you put your next steps and your offering in the bucket when it comes by. If they're coming, I want to let you know that the first thing we're going to do right after we collect our, uh, our tithe and offering here today is we're going to take communion together. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've committed your life to him, you're welcome to participate with us. And if you're not, we'd ask you to just sit back and uh, enjoy and be meditative and engage the worship or whatever. But this is for Christians. And here we are at Holy Week. We're talking about the core of our faith and the impact that Jesus wants to make. So we're going to celebrate that together. I'm grateful to serve a church that is kind and generous. I am. I'm grateful to partner with you in all the great things that we're doing here, near, and far around the world. Thank you. Next Sunday, we're going to have a blowout celebration of our risen Lord. And because he is alive, we get to be alive here and now and for eternity. And you're going to discover, every one of you who serve and pray and give, next Sunday you'll be reminded that not one penny, not one prayer, not one minute was wasted. It all matters. And you're going to be able to see it front and center in the faces of people who are with us next Sunday. Why don't you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. God, I confess I don't know enough. But I do know enough to know that you're calling us to put our faith and trust in you. So God, I pray that you would use the words today, strip any encumbrance, any speed bumps, any difficulty from the words I've spoken. And God, would your spirit do the work it does, making truth alive, bringing the word to life in the minds and the hearts and the ears of the folks in this room. God, I want to pray right now for those men and women in the room who are saying, Jesus, wash away my sins. I have nothing to bring. I can't earn this. So I'm going to trust completely the work that you have done on the cross and in your resurrection to secure my relationship to my heavenly Father. I want to follow you with my life. Lord, I pray for all the 
sons and daughters and friends and aunts and uncles and grandparents and parents and neighbors and co-workers and fellow students that are on our hearts and minds when we think about eternity. God, would you help us not to get stuck in our questions, but instead be motivated towards obedience. That we are, as your people, called to share the gospel. That includes our life and our words. I pray in advance, Lord, for all the guests you're going to bring here next Sunday. They feel welcome. They sense your spirit in our worship and that the word of God preached would be powerful and effective in their lives. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to give back to your work here. Would you take our offering and our next steps and help us to go farther than we could ever go on our own? Would you multiply its impact in our lives? grateful for what you're doing. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.